Hello and welcome to Montgomery Talk. I'm Doug Tallman, senior reporter at Montgomery Community Media, coming to you from our podcast studios outside the Rockville corporate limits. Today I'm speaking with Mark Corman, a member of the Maryland House of Delegates, representing District 16, uh, which includes parts of Bethesda, North Bethesda, and Potomac. Uh, he serves on the House Appropriations Committee, a panel that is intimately involved with the 40-some billion dollar state spending plan this, each year. He is also chair of the Montgomery County House delegation, which means he will be instrumental in seeing local bills uh, move through uh, the various committees and uh, the floors of the different chambers up in Annapolis. And we're here to talk to him about the upcoming General Assembly session, which will start January 9th in the new year. Welcome, Mr. Corbett. Thanks for having me. So first, two things from the news. Um, today's New York Times has a lengthy investigation in how Facebook said one thing concerning uh, how it was protecting users' data and then did something quite the opposite, which makes me wonder um, who in state government is responsible for protecting sensitive resident data, and how can we be sure that it is protected? Sure. So it's something I think governments, businesses at all levels are struggling with is, you know, data security. Uh, in Maryland, we have something called the Department of Information Technology. It's been around for about 11 years. It's a cabinet-level department that's supposed to oversee our state's IT infrastructure. As part of that, they issue an information security policy uh, that the government is supposed to follow. But I will say that policy is now quite dated. Actually, a constituent flagged for me that that policy is five years old. So we took a look at it, uh, noticed some uh, things about it that were not quite up to date, and I actually sent a letter to the Department of IT uh, about this, and they brought me in and discussed what they were doing, how they were going to change it going forward, and also how they were going to make sure the other departments were actually following the policy. So it wasn't just something on a website, but something that the departments were actually um, working on. I should say my colleague, Senator Lee, who also represents District 16, has been very involved in these data privacy, data security issues. Uh, so there's a lot of attention on it. But in truth, again, a lot of states, a lot of governments, a lot of businesses are struggling with these same uh, issues. And so we need to make sure our Department of IT and the rest of our government really stays you know, ahead of the curve to protect uh, that really sensitive data. Are you aware of any um, breaches of state data? Uh, I'm not aware of any, but you know, regularly um, there are concerns about probing from from various things. That's something that came up with the State Board of Elections. There was a probe done by, a, a, I believe, a foreign government, although there was no actual breach there. Uh, our Department of uh, Legislative Services, through their Office of Legislative Audit, regularly audits state agencies, and they often flag information security issues, not necessarily breaches, but concerns about how passwords are being used, for example. And so we always want to make sure that we're responding to those to avoid there being any problem in the future. I mean, the, the silliest way at this point for someone to breach data is through, you know, uh, an easy password hanging around. Obviously, there's much more significant threats we need to worry about as well. But if you look at the back at almost every audit report, there are issues related to that. And so we really need to make sure that we're getting our uh, whole government, you know, on the same page, you know, to get ahead of these threats. So when those appear on uh, state audit, um, what happens? I mean, uh, is there somebody's job to sit back and say um, these things were were, were fixed? Yep. Or? So the departments uh, issue a response when the audits are made public. The department's response is there, and in almost all cases, the department agrees with the finding and explains the corrective action they're taking. There are occasionally uh, repeat findings in audits, so they're not usually in the ones I've read in this information security context. Usually, you know, when uh, OLA, the Office of Legislative Audits, flags one of these issues, uh, it's handled pretty quickly by the departments. They realize the error and they just, you know, take the corrective action. Okay. Um, on Monday, I believe, um, one other item from the news, and, and on Monday, um, um, it was reported that the Jesuits had released a list of 24 
um, former and uh, some deceased priests in uh, the what they call the Maryland province who had been credibly accused of abuse of minors. Um, two years ago, the legislature passed legislation expanding the or lengthening the amount of time that a person can um, take their abuser to court. Um, is there any? Have you seen anything that says you know we need to go back to this and? There's some, there are other issues that we need to resolve on this. Yeah, so my colleague C.T. Wilson, I should say, was really crucial uh, from Southern Maryland, really crucial in passing that legislation due to uh, some really unfortunate personal history of his. Uh, and so that was an important change to sort of extend the statute of limitations. Um, I think there's another um, piece which is the reporting requirements. Maryland, I think, is, is the only state or maybe one of two states in the country that's missing a certain uh, type of criminal accountability for not reporting uh, certain types of child and sexual abuse. And so I think expanding that would be good. It's something that historically has not been able to get through the Judiciary Committees of the House and Senate. Those committees have changed quite a bit, as you probably know, since the uh, past election. And so there might be uh, some progress there going forward. Okay. Um, I guess... When you, when you say changes, um, I guess the biggest one is that uh, Delegate Valerio is no longer in the House of Delegates. Yeah, so we have, a, yeah, I'm sorry, we have a new chair of the, in the House Judiciary Committee and a lot of new members. But even on the, on the Senate side, although it's the same chair, we have a new vice chair in Senator Will Smith from here in Montgomery County. We have uh, Senator Jeff Waldstriker, or Senator-elect Jeff Waldstriker is now joining that committee, along with a lot of other new members. Uh, Senator um, Mary Washington from Baltimore City, uh, Senator Jill Carter, so lots of new blood on the Senate side, as well as obviously on the House side, but that leadership change you referenced. Uh, and, and often, advocates for lots of issues, not just uh, child abuse, have um, pointed to former Delegate Valerio's uh, obstructionism, is that the right way to put it, um, in getting certain bills passed. Um, would it be a reasonable assumption that um, it may be a little easier to get bills through judiciary um, I, going forward? It'll obviously be different. I don't think, you know, the proof is in the pudding, so I don't want to speak for the new chair, Luke Clippinger from Baltimore City, but obviously uh, anytime you have a change in the leadership of a committee, there's a change in how that committee functions. I serve on the Appropriations Committee. When I got there, it was a new chair, Maggie McIntosh from Baltimore City. She replaced a long-serving um, Chair uh, Norm Conway, and the culture of the committee changed. How it functions just changes as a result of uh, new leadership. Just as if you got a new boss here, the you know the the way things work here would be different. So there'll, there'll probably be some change. You know, you can't guarantee passage of certain bills. So at the outset, um, I described how you were a member of the Appropriations Committee. So I have a couple questions about the budget. Um, Comptroller Peter Francho told us that the state was uh, on the brink of receiving oceans of revenue, in part because of the after effects of the Trump tax cut, and in part because of uh, state sales taxes that would be imposed on internet companies. Um, do you agree that the money will materialize? So first of all, just to be clear, it's online sales. The state is now allowed to collect those taxes. Those taxes are always supposed to be uh, remitted, but they were not done by most people unless there was a physical uh, presence in the state. The Supreme Court expanded that. So that's a nationwide change. That's not a, a tax on internet companies that was imposed by the state of Maryland or anything like that. Um, I think that is the most assured sort of stream of revenue in the, in the quote-unquote ocean that uh, the comptroller talks about. We've already seen that, you know, revenue begin to come in. That should expand for two reasons. One, compliance will improve over time. And two, you know, I think the Internet's, you know, uh, people are going to continue purchasing things from the Internet in higher and higher uh, numbers. And so I think that is a pretty assured uh, stream of revenue. The tax changes, we don't fully know the ramifications of those yet. That's a little less uh, certain. It's not clear how long that increase will um, last. If changes we make at the state level might affect that 
change. Um, and so that's a little less assured. But yeah, I mean, the, the revenue estimates uh, are certainly up. Uh, and the collections from this past year were certainly up. And so there's a lot more money that appears sort of on our balance sheet um, for the state. Okay. So where should that money be spent? So I think there's a few different things. I mean, one, I think you need to, um, you know, be careful in, in long-term commitments you make, whether that's in new spending or in tax changes. You want to make sure that the money is actually going to materialize and uh, we don't create a future imbalance uh, in, our, uh, in our budgets. You know, unlike the federal government, we have to balance our budget every year. And so although there might be a sort of a long-term projected deficit, when we get to that year, we need to balance the budget. Well, right now, even with this, you know, new, you know, revenue, in the out years of our budget projections, there is still an imbalance. There's still a deficit. So I think you'll see um, some of it dedicated to the rainy day fund. Yesterday, uh, the uh, what's called the Spending Affordability Committee raised our target for to six percent of our uh, of our general fund for our rainy day fund. So we'll put some money there. I think you'll see uh, some interest in other sort of one-time expenditures, capital type expenditures or money to the pension fund, things like that. And then, of course, we have the Kerwin Commission, which is sort of the big gorilla hanging over our whole legislative session. And obviously, that's in more in the nature of long-term uh, funding commitments, ongoing operating expenses. But some of the money could be uh, designated towards that. Of course, that's a broader conversation about what that would all cost, what we're trying to do with that, and how we pay for it. Um, we'll come back to the Kerwin Commission. But um, on your list of potentials um, where that money could go, none of it was return to the taxpayer. Do you think any, do you think there's a room for um, any sort of rebate or tax cut um, with this money? Sure. Well, from? I mean, I did reference that there could be changes at the state level that could affect our ability to have this revenue. We made a few changes last year. Um, you know, I wouldn't say anything monumental, but there were changes. There were changes to the earned income tax credit eligibility. Uh, we uh, slightly increased and pegged to inflation the standard deduction. I think um, there could be room to do more. I think it's uh, complicated to figure out exactly who is harmed versus who is held harmless versus who benefits from the changes at the federal level and trying to figure out exactly how to hold the right people harmless is complicated. I will say in my district, because of the, uh, the, the state and local tax deduction cap of $10,000, uh, it's pretty problematic for my district, these federal tax changes and, and what's going to happen. And I think we're going to see in April when people are, you know, paying their tax bills, uh, a lot of concern about uh, what it looks like to them and their increase potentially in state taxes for some very technical reasons we can get into uh, if you want. So I think that's going to be an ongoing conversation. But I also think we have to recognize that we do have significant needs at the state level. People want to invest in education. People want to invest in transportation. People want to invest in public safety and health care. And it takes tax revenue to do that. And so I think we need to be honest about you know, our needs as well. Um, going back to Mr. Francho again, um, he, he pointed out recently that we are in the 113th month of an economic expansion and our record is 119 months. So it could very well be that in the next six months we are, you know, it, it, unless we break a record, sometime for the next six, six months we could be in another recession. So does that factor into the whole political calculus of what to do with this money? Sure. I mean, there will be another recession, whether it's in six months or 16 months or six years, there will be another recession. That's how, that's how the economy mm -hmm. works. It's, a, it's cyclical, although the length of those cycles um, varies. Maryland's a little unusual because we actually tend to do a little bit better than the rest of the country during the actual recession. It's the follow-on to recession. So it doesn't mean we do great during recessions. It doesn't mean people suffer. But if you sort of look at the state overall, because the government tends to spend a little bit more money when the economy goes down, 
that can be beneficial for Maryland because of the size of our federal workforce. So we can withstand that a little bit better, although certainly people still suffer. Um, but then the follow-on, when the government then, you know, presses the brakes on spending, and this last time it was federal sequestration, that can really um, hurt us. But no, clearly, you know, if people are feeling uncertain about the economy, if people have lost their jobs, if they're not spending as much at the store or now on the Internet, if they're not getting that same income, clearly that's going to affect our, uh, you know, the revenue we collect at the state. Um, and that's just the time when we want to help people more because they need that help. And, of course, the state, you know, participates in Medicaid, food stamps, all sorts of safety net programs. Uh, and of course, anytime you know we're not investing in education, I think is a pretty short-sighted mistake. So that's a, it's a it's a legitimate concern. I'll say our recovery from the Great Recession in Maryland was never all that great. It has not been as robust as we uh, needed to be. That's not a partisan statement. That's been true under governors of both parties. Uh, and so that's something also we need to keep an eye on is our sort of economic strength overall to make sure when, when we are coming out of a recession that we're really taking advantage of that recovery. It's been. You know, unfortunate, this hasn't been as strong uh, economically in the state as I think we need long term. Okay. Well, you mentioned the Kerwin Commission. Could you give the 30-second, 30,000-foot uh, view of what exactly the commission is trying to do? Sure. So um, about 15 years ago, there was something called the Thornton Commission that actually came out of some uh, litigation that looked at our state um, funding for education, our formulas, how the money is allocated. The Kerwin Commission is the follow-on to that. It was always anticipated there'd be sort of a review of that. It's sometimes referred to as adequacy, the adequacy of our public education. And so they've spent the past two years looking at um, – Actually, they've mostly been focusing on what we should be spending operating dollars on for education. You know, how should we train our teachers? How many should we have? What should they be teaching? What about pre-K? What about career and technical education? They've really been focusing on that, and now they're shifting a little bit to how the money is going to be allocated and how much it's going to cost to fund all the things they say we need for a really 21st century system of education. And so that report is sort of coming in any day now, and that will be then in the legislature's lap uh, to, uh, to act on it. And before you get the report, where are people thinking that the money's going to come from for this? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, there's a lot of discussion about, you know, will you need new revenue? Will you be able to just use the online sales tax increase you described before or some of the other um, changes? Can you do some restructuring? Uh, and so it's unclear. It depends on how ambitious the report is and how ambitious the legislature wants to be with it to determine how much money you actually need. They're talking about, I think, a $4.4 billion increase over 10 years. Uh, that's a lot of money, but of course we already have increases every um, year, so it's not quite as much as it uh, sounds like. Uh, and so I think you know it's an open question of uh, will you need new revenue, how much will that be, and will there be the political will to do that? And uh, then of course there'll be a discussion of how you divide up the revenue that's uh, gained. Obviously that's really important for Montgomery County. We are, if you look at us in the aggregate, compared to a lot of the other parts of the state, economically well off and successful, but that doesn't mean we don't have significant uh, needs here. And clearly in the eastern part of the county, you know, there's pockets of poverty everywhere, but particularly in the eastern part of the county, there are really significant needs. Uh, and we need to make sure those needs are uh, attended to by the state and not just ignored. So um, there is some fear that it's going to mean a, a net loss for Montgomery County, correct? You know, there was an early consultant report actually before the Kerwin Commission itself was appointed. There was a consultant hired by the state to study some of these issues to sort of set the groundwork for Kerwin. And in one of their reports, there were three counties that were going to have a, a under one of their proposals, sort of a net loss in state funding with the thinking being that the local government would fill in that gap. That was a consultant report. Consultant reports are very nice. They can have lots of useful data. That's not really in touch with the you know uh, political process here in Maryland. I don't think any 
uh, jurisdiction, but particularly Montgomery County, which has the largest delegation in, in the House, is going to see an actual cut in funding from the state. I think we're really talking about how are increases, if, if increases happen, going to be allocated among the jurisdictions more than anybody actually facing a cut, but it's something to be attentive to, make sure we you know, understand what that recommendation was, why it was there, and you know, be able to explain why we think it's incorrect. Okay, well, I think now would be a good time to take a short break. Um, um, and when we come back, we'll have more Montgomery Talk with Delegate Mark Corman. I'm Doug Tolman, senior reporter at Montgomery Community Media. And uh, we have a couple of non-Montgomery politics questions for him as well. So be sure to come back. MCM, your community media center, is making Montgomery County a great place to live through programs like 21 This Week. Montgomery County's hardest-hitting political talk show keeps you up to date with the local political scene. Montgomery Community Media. Our middle name is Community. And we're back with more Montgomery Talk with Delegate Mark Corman, and we're talking about the upcoming General Assembly session. I'm Doug Tolman, senior reporter at Montgomery Community Media. Um, we ended the last segment talking about the budget, and um, one thing I don't think that came up was uh, school construction. Um, the, uh, the governor has his own $1.9 billion plan that he unveiled a couple days ago. Um, I, I don't know if you saw Barry Raskovar's uh, take on it, but he I thought did. it was a... Uh, um, he thinks it's a, it's just a way to short circuit the Kerwin Commission funding. Um, and I'm not going to go into his logic on that one on here, but I'm curious, what are you, what are your thoughts on what the governor proposed? Yeah. So first of all, we have, you know, a lot of issues with school construction every year, really important in Montgomery County. Obviously we have a lot of schools over capacity and we also have a lot of schools that just have the normal wear and tear maintenance issues that need uh, significant investment. And we've worked pretty hard at that, at least during my four years in the legislature, uh, as part of a, a much broader team effort, we've had an over 50% increase in the state contribution to school construction in Montgomery County. Now, look, that's all uh, Marylanders tax dollars. It's not as though whether it comes from the county or state, it's still from the taxpayers. But in terms of that accounting, we've had a nice increase uh, from the state level. There's obviously more to do. What the governor's proposed is obviously sort of an opening um, bid in negotiations for both Kerwin and, and school construction, how to use the, the quote-unquote lockbox, the education funding coming from uh, from gambling revenue. And so it's going to be a, a long conversation. But, you know, there are things that we definitely need in Montgomery County for school construction. And the idea of a plan similar to what Baltimore City has, where there's sort of a separate stream of bonds that are can be supported by both the county and the state uh, to build more schools is something that, you know, we're very interested in here in Montgomery County. We'd also like to see the enrollment growth grant increase. That's something that's been really important for Montgomery County, recognizing that schools with fast-growing populations need extra school construction resources. That's been very important to us. Uh, there are some other technical changes we can make as well to help how we're doing with uh, school construction. But yeah, that's right along there with Kerwin as something really important to the county when it comes to uh, the state-provided education funding. Okay. Well, the, the contracts for um, um, school construction obviously go through the Board of Public Works 
One third of the Board of Public Works is Nancy Kopp, um, former delegate. I believe she served in your district. She did. Um, they actually don't go through the Board of Public Works anymore. There was a change made last year that there's now uh, the Interagency Commission right. on School Construction. The governor's proposal would try to revert some of that power back to the Board of Public Works. Uh, frankly, I see no reason why we would change that back. Uh, that just doesn't make a ton of sense to me to, to roll that back right after we just made uh, this reform, so I don't expect that to happen. Okay. Uh, she had, uh, getting back to Nancy Cop, she Sorry. has been criticized by Baltimore delegates as being too cozy with the governor and Francho and not doing, um, I believe the phrase was, the needs of the party, um, which seems kind of an odd phrase for someone who's really just signing checks on contracts. Um, if she gets voted out, what does what happens to Montgomery County's role in Montgomery in, in Annapolis? So, one, I don't think she's going to be voted out, although that's a process that plays out in January. As you know, the state treasurer is selected by the legislature. Uh, each member of the legislature, each delegate, each senator has one vote. Uh, I suspect that Nancy Cobb, if she wants to continue serving, will be able to do that. She's done a great job for us, not necessarily as a party, because that's not really her role, but representing the legislature's interest. It happens that the legislature's majority Democrat, but representing the legislature's interest at the Board of Public Works. Uh, I think she's been, you know, obviously great for Montgomery County. It's great um, as a District 16 delegate when we have affairs of state in the, in the legislature and I look to the front and I see um, Brian Frosch, another former District 16 delegate, then state senator, now attorney general sitting in the front next to Nan Nancy Kopp. Uh, next to Peter Francho, who's also from Montgomery County. That's obviously a great thing. But if you look at our strength in Annapolis, uh, it's also uh, grounded in the legislature. If you look in the House, two of the six standing committees are chaired by members from Montgomery County. The majority leader, Kathleen Dumay, is from Montgomery County. The House Democratic Caucus Chair, Eric Lutke, is from Montgomery County. We have numerous subcommittee chairs. The 24 of us are the largest delegation uh, in, the, uh, in the state. So our strength in Annapolis um, exists apart from Nancy Kopp, although having Nancy there is great. She's done a great job. I hope she'll continue uh, to serve. Okay, but I guess the question then becomes, although you seem confident that she won't get voted out, um, I believe it was Talmadge Branch who was uh, the one who raised questions about her role in the Board of Public Works. He's an influential member of the Baltimore City delegation. Is your confidence well-founded? Well, I, to be honest with you, I haven't heard much about any kind of race yet. I mean, four years ago when we voted on the treasurer, there was one candidate. It was Nancy Kopp. I don't know how it was uh, the years before that. I was not in the legislature prior to that. I have not heard about an alternative candidate to Nancy Kopp. I have not heard about anybody challenging her or running against her, so I have no reason to believe she's not going to continue serving uh, if she wants to. If we get to the point where there's a, an actual race for it, you know, I'm happy to come back and talk about what that looks like and who the candidates are and why Nancy Kopp should continue serving. But at this point, there's just no uh, indication of a change. Okay. Um, how would you uh, so you rattled off all the all the folks from Montgomery County and who are serving in in committee and vice committee uh, vice chairman roles in the committees? What is Montgomery County's clout in 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 Annapolis? We've got all these positions, yet it seems like it's a struggle every year for the state's largest jurisdiction to get school construction funds, to get education funds, to get um, bills through. I'm uh, curious. What, yeah, I don't know if it's a struggle. I think there's a legislative process we have to follow, and you know, lots of places in the state have needs, and we want to be attentive to those needs. I mean, I'm not for Montgomery at the expense of Hartford or Montgomery at the expense of Baltimore City or Montgomery at the expense of Prince George's County. We have a lot of needs uh, here as well, but so does the rest of the state, and uh, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats. I would say we've done a pretty good job of uh, getting the things we need, but we could always do better. Um, we're not going to do better by saying we want more clout or we just want more in isolation. We need to be specific 
about what it is we're asking for and you know what it is we need in Montgomery County. School construction is a great example. We've made a concerted effort these past few years to explain why we need more in school construction, and it's happened. We've gotten, like I said, over a 50% increase in school construction. Last year, we made a concerted effort to explain why WMATA, the metro system, is really important, uh, not only to Montgomery County, but obviously we, we benefit more than most of the state from metro functioning, and we were able to get dedicated funding passed, something that had been a 50-year goal uh, of the region. It wasn't just Maryland. We were part of a regional um, bipartisan effort. Uh, you know, We have things like the biotech tax credit that are really important in Montgomery County that we've been able to see grow and expand over time. The Purple Line was a priority of ours. That's moving forward. So when it comes to you know, our cloud and how are we doing, we need to be specific in our, in our wants. We need to explain why they're important to us and the rest of the state, and we need to execute on that. And I think we've actually done a pretty good uh, job on that. When you ask what's our clout, I mean, there's no, clout, or there's no Q rating for that, right? There's no, you know, we have nine points out of ten in clout. Um, you know, we need to go down there with our list of needs, explain why they're important, explain, you know, why we think it's important that the state invest in those things and, and execute. Okay. Uh, besides, uh, we talked quite a bit about education, but uh, the other big issue in Montgomery County is transportation. Um, and what, and of course, the, the, the gorilla in the room is uh, the expansion of I-270 in the Beltway. What's going to happen in this session concerning uh, those two projects? Yeah, I think, you know, it's uh, the governor kicked off a, a process on uh, Rosh Hashanah a, a year and a half ago or 15 months ago. And um, it's sort of moving in parallel universes. On the one hand, the governor made clear that first day that he is planning on, you know, two new toll lanes in each direction. Um you know, so adding, you know, trying to widen the, the road. And then there's this separate process, the actual legal process that has to be followed that's actually studying a range of alternatives. Um, I think it'd be nice to see those two worlds meet a little bit and make sure that the uh, political leadership of the state, the governor, the secretary of transportation, are actually following the legal process that's required and actually looking at all the alternatives. Uh, for example, Montgomery County has stepped forward with an idea of reversible lanes on 270 as opposed to, as opposed to excuse me, adding two lanes in each direction, which, you know, could involve taking some homes and businesses despite the governor's um, sort of vague claims to the contrary. How you're going to add more lanes around the Beltway, I mean, you've driven the Beltway. There are some areas there where it seems pretty tight when you have a hospital, a park, houses, all sorts of things. Um, how this is all going to be paid for is very, um, very murky. The governor and the secretary have made a lot of um, grandiose promises. Hard to see how they're going to be able to live up to all those promises. So I think there's a lot of concern about it. It doesn't require, uh, as it's being proposed now, an affirmative vote of the legislature to move forward. But I think you're going to see a desire among legislators to have more of a role, not only because of this specific project, but because of the process the governor's following could be repeated in other projects in the future. And I think we're going to want to make sure that the uh, other co-equal branch of government that's elected in the same, for the same term as the governor has a role to play in those processes. You know, the, the public-private partnership law has value. There's a lot of things about it that I think we like. It's done a good job of rehabbing uh, rest stops on I-95. It's been useful for the Purple Line. It's had other uses. Doesn't mean it's perfect. Doesn't mean we're not going to make some uh, changes to it, you know, sort of regardless of the 274-95 project, but certainly that's, as you said, one of the, uh, one of the big gorillas. Um, a piece of legislation that has already been introduced that um, I find rather interesting is the, is the enabling legislation to allow ranked choice voting or approval voting in Montgomery County. Um, first, can you explain uh, simply what exactly this is going to uh, entail? I can try. Uh, Delegate Lutke and Senator Kagan have introduced a bill that would allow the Montgomery County Council to make a change in how we um, vote in local elections 
uh, in the county. And so the way ranked choice voting, which is the, the, the part that's getting most of the discussion works, is um, basically you rank your candidates uh, in, in order of preference. And so if someone doesn't get a majority of the vote, uh, the bottom candidates drop off and you sort of reallocate votes until somebody gets a majority or in the case of our at-large county council until four people would get a majority. This has been done statewide now in Maine and then I think San Francisco has it locally. A few other places have it for their local elections. And the idea of it is to make sure that people aren't winning with a very small plurality of the vote. When you have 33 candidates running for the Montgomery County Council, for example, you have the potential for someone with very few votes. Uh, to win. And so the idea of this is just to make sure that the people who ultimately win have a broader, wider base of support. And so I think there's a lot of interest in that, given um, the volume of candidates we had running and the relatively small percentage um, people uh, people won with. Won't solve all our problems. And I think, you know, the immediate question people ask is, do I have to rank 33 candidates? The answer to that is no. You rank as many as you want, just like now. When you're voting for county council at large, you don't have to vote for four. You don't have to vote in county council at large at all. You can skip that entirely when you get uh, to, to that section of your ballot. Similar idea here. It's up to the voter to decide how much they want to do. If they want to rank all 33 candidates, which is something I would probably do, you can do that. If you're more of a, a typical voter, you'll probably rank, you know, six, maybe eight candidates, and then you'll stop. Um, but the idea of it is to make sure people winning have majority support, or at least people getting nominated have majority support. I guess it, I didn't explain that. No, no, enough. no. I have to admit, the, 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 well, the notion of going from uh, just because you're ranking them doesn't necessarily mean they're getting majority support. You, you may be express a voter may be able to express their thought that, oh yeah, um, here are my four, and I, I this I like this guy too, and I like this woman too, and sure they get. Um, um, yeah, so it's like an instant runoff, if you think you can think of it that way. So in a normal runoff election, right, what would happen is the top two, I'll just use two, even though with our county council at large, it's a little more complicated, right? With, with a runoff election, the top two candidates in the first round would go on to the next round, right? And then you're down to two candidates, so one of them has to win majority support. That's, you know, uh, I learned that at Bell Elementary in, you know, 1987. Right. Uh, and so this is a way to do that without actually holding another election. It's basically saying... You know, if there was a runoff, how would you treat, you know, candidates differently? And so it's not perfect, but it's a way to basically have what amounts to an instant runoff without the cost and time of another election. I, I, and part of it, I guess, where, where I have the trouble is that the problem to me isn't that who we're electing, it's that not enough people are voting. And it does seems to be like you're spending a lot of time on trying to decide who gets elected when really you should be spending that time trying to get more people to vote. Yeah, we get to walk and chew gum, so we've done lots of things to try to expand um, voting. Early voting is a great example. Uh, this past election we uh, passed on the ballot. You probably voted for it. Uh, Same-day voter registration. Uh, I think there's going to be an effort this year in the Ways and Means Committee to expand the number of early voting sites. And, you know, thankfully also we had increased turnout uh, this past year, both in our primary and general election. Uh, frankly, after 2014's dismal turnout, we had little place to go but up, but it's good to see the, the trend line um, reversing. I think uh, government can do a lot, unfortunately, and I, I know you feel this acutely. Part of the issue that I feel in Montgomery County is the lack of media has actually had a big effect on turnout because people only hear about uh, their legislators in Annapolis and, frankly, sometimes their council members and county exec in Rockville around election time. And I think for people to really want to participate in the process, they need to know more about what's going on with government all the time. So that's why I'm happy about this podcast and everything you're doing at MCM. 
happy about Maryland Matters, Bethesda Beat. We really need more restored media attention to what's going on with government so that people are aware of it and, uh, and are more invested in the process, I think, to get voter turnout to uh, continue rising and, and stay up. Um, let's do a flash round just really quick because I want a couple other things I want to get to before too long. Um, what's going to happen to beer sales at the state level? It was a big deal last year. Um, will there be a change in how craft beers are regulated? Uh, so, I, you know, we don't have the legislation for the session that affects the whole state yet. We do have some local legislation that would allow some of our craft brewers to brew more. Uh, again, Delegate Lukey has been leading the way on that. So I think you're going to see a continued desire for people to have increased access, you know, safely and, and drinking responsibly, of course, but increased access to craft beer. Uh, so I think the pressure will continue to be on for that. Haven't seen any bills yet. Okay. And what do you think is going to happen with recreational marijuana in this session? Uh, I don't know if it'll be this session, but I'm fairly confident that we will eventually reach a point where, like gambling, it will go on the ballot and people will have uh, the choice whether or not we want to have recreational marijuana in the state regulated, uh, taxed. Um, but, you know, I think it's uh, it's somewhat inevitable in my view. And, and I support that change. I support treating it like alcohol, uh, frankly, like tobacco, where it's taxed, regulated, limited, um, but available for, you know, consenting adults. And uh, as the delegation chair, you were overseeing the entire House delegation. You say there's 10 new members? 10 of our um, 24 members are, are new. Of course, I don't get to, I don't oversee them, but I, uh, you know, do have the honor of, um, of trying to uh, uh, herd, herd the them. cats a little bit. Yeah. Uh, we now have a majority female uh, delegation. 13 of our 24 members are female. And the delegation looks a lot more like the the county as a whole, we have uh, African-American males, African-American females, we have uh, gay members, we have straight members, we have Latino-Latina members, uh, we have older members, we have younger members, and I think that's really important because um, I'm a white, you know, mid-30s male, uh, there's still a bunch of us in the county, but the county, as you know, is majority minority, and so it's important that our uh, delegations start to look a little bit more like the rest of uh, the county, and that's important for when we go to Annapolis to show what our uh, true faces because people think all of Montgomery County looks like me. Uh, there are still some me's left in the county, but it's obviously changed quite a bit. And so it's great that our delegation is reflecting that. You bring up a, a subject that I brought up in an earlier podcast. And I'll bring it up with you as well. Um, for a, a county that's as progressive as Montgomery County, why is it that there's only one woman on the county council? Now you've got a, you say you've got a majority female on at the state level. Why is it so easy relatively easy for a woman to get elected to the House of Delegates and that much more difficult to get elected to uh, the county council. Well, I'm not sure it's easy. I think my colleague Sarah Love, who serves with me, who won by just a handful of votes, wouldn't say it was easy for her to get there. My other two colleagues in my district are also female, Delegate Kelly, Senator Lee. I wouldn't say they would think it was easy. Um, I do think there's been a concerted effort by groups like Emerge Maryland to try to position women to run better. Uh, and stronger in these um, races. So far, I guess there's been more success at the state legislative level. I think, you know, the, the council will follow. This was an unusual year in our council elections, but I think you're going to continue to see really qualified women run and do well. Um, you know, we, uh, it's not as though we went from zero to one on the county council. This is actually sort of an aberration that we're down to one woman, I would say, on the county council. Um, to take nothing away from the eight uh, other great councilmen, on the, on the council there, I think it is unfortunate that we only have one woman, but I don't think that's a, a, an inevitable part of politics. I think you're going to see qualified women run in four years and do well. Okay. And then finally, I want to, you are well known for your book reviews, particularly about history. Um, who's your favorite president? 
Uh, I'm, you know, obviously, I think the Washington and Lincoln choices are obvious. As a, as a good partisan Democrat, FDR would be sort of my next uh, after that. If you're looking for something on the more um, obscure side, my son and I just started, my seven-year-old son, who's really into presidents as well, just started reading with me the Ron Chernow Grant book, which has been uh, interesting so far. So think, speaking of, uh, you know, great writers of history, uh, the book opens describing how he wrote his memoirs and debunking the myth that uh, Mark Twain or Samuel Clemens ghost wrote it for him. So really interesting, uh, interesting read. Grant, we should be looking. I, I haven't finished the book yet. That, that's just, uh, I'm just previewing. You'll have me back and I'll tell you the, the final review. Okay. Or you can read it on Facebook. All right. All right, now's the time to wrap things up. Thank you, Delegate Corman, for joining me. I'm Doug Tallman, senior reporter at Montgomery Community Media. Our engineer today was Allie Potter. And we'll be taking a break over the holiday. And we hope you'll be here for the first session in... Uh, 2019 and then we'll be talking Montgomery on Montgomery Talk.